Thank you, Justin. All right, we are in Obadiah. Obadiah. In the shortest book in the Old Testament, 21 verses. We're going to cover all 21. Massive task before us today. Uh, So you can turn there. Um, Now, there are a couple of related questions or issues um, as we've been going through the minor prophets that have come up, perhaps you have crossed your mind, that we haven't really had time to dig into much. Um, And this is especially the case if you're used to, like most of us, we probably spend most of our time reading the New Testament. Um, uh, And then when you turn to the Old Testament, you turn especially to the minor prophets, there are some things you notice and that lead to some questions. So one of these is that it seems in the Old Testament that God seems to work along, often work along, ethnic or national lines. Um, So last week we saw God uh, bring judgment on seven people groups or or nations, kingdoms, and then he brought them on judgment on Israel as well, this other nation. In the New Testament, we tend to, to see more kind of individual working, God working salvation and judgment, um, responding to, to individuals. That's there in the Old Testament as well, but um, we see it a lot more in the New Testament. And then a second but related question is this. It, it seems as God is working among these nations in the Old Testament that he, uh, well, not it seems, he, he, he directs his work towards one nation in particular much of the time, towards Israel, towards his people, Israel. In the New Testament, there's still a lot of talk of Israel, and they still play a, a significant role. Uh, most of the characters, including Jesus himself, come from Israel. But God's people now, as we read through the New Testament, encompasses people from all nations and, and tribes and tongues, um, something called the church. And this church now has this role of being God's witnesses to the earth, being this primary means through which God is revealing himself and his purposes and drawing people into his, his people. So how are we to understand this seemingly differences, these changes, as it were, between reading the Old Testament and reading the New Testament? Does God change? And then where does Jesus stand in this? How does Jesus... Uh, you know, what role does Jesus play in fulfilling, and what, what does that mean? Now, perhaps these questions and these concerns don't sound very exciting to you. Perhaps you wonder how relevant they really are, but they, they really are. If, if, if we don't address these things, um, we, we can very easily uh, misinterpret, um, incorrectly understand uh, some parts of Scripture, some more than others. And eventually they bring up bigger questions about God's character, about God's faithfulness, God's um, promises, keeping his promises, God's justice. Uh, Does God show favoritism? Is God interested only in working in this one little area among among these people and not the rest of the world? Does God's concern and purposes um, not include the whole world? Is his sovereignty limited? And does God keep his promises? Um, perhaps you, you even found yourself just kind of skipping over sections of the Bible uh, just because these things come to the surface. And you're like, I don't know what to do with that. 
And I don't know how to, how to interpret that and apply that. So again, these things have come up in the last few weeks um, and we haven't, just haven't had the chance to really dive into them as we're covering some of the bigger books. But today we're in Obadiah and we have the chance and we need to dive into this a little bit more, some of these questions. Okay, so Obadiah, 21 verses. Uh, we're not going to answer, like, these are big topics. There's a lot to, to say on them, and there's a variety of views on some of this stuff. Um, we're not going to answer all of the questions and get into everything, but hopefully give you some sort of framework for understanding um, these things. Okay, so let's start at the beginning, because that makes sense. Obadiah 1. There's no chapters, as you'll notice in, in Obadiah. It's just Obadiah. Verse 1, the, verse, uh, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Okay, so the, the concern, the focus of the book of Obadiah is largely on the people of Edom or the Edomites. And the Edomites are significant because they are distant relatives of the Israelites. Uh, the Edomites come from Esau. Probably heard the name Esau, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Um, Jacob is also who God renames Israel. So Jacob and Esau are, are twins. Um, and we need to understand a bit of the history between these twin brothers and the people that come from them to grasp um, a lot of stuff, but especially what we're going to see today in Obadiah. So their, um, their colored history begins early on while they are still in the womb, and we are told that they uh, struggled together in the womb. Um, their, their mom noticed this, and she inquired of God. And God said to her, in Genesis 25, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. So Esau's the oldest one, Jacob's the younger. Um, at some point in their lives, they're, they're born, they, their, their life goes on for a bit. Um, Jacob, the younger, convinces Esau, the oldest, in a moment of weakness, to sell him his birthright. Now, we don't really deal with birthrights today. Uh, birthright in this time meant that, um, the, that, that you would be the head. It was given to the oldest son in a family and meant that you would be the head, the leader of that tribe going forward. You would kind of carry on the family line. You also received a double portion of the inheritance. Later on, Jacob then continues uh, to get some things that weren't really his, and he deceives his father, and um, he, he receives his father's blessing that was supposed to go towards Esau, uh, but is given to, to Jacob, the younger. So Jacob now has the birthright and the blessing that were originally supposed to go to Esau. And through these very, this very human series of events, the promises that God had made to Abraham, that God was going to make a great nation of Abraham, was going to make his descendants as numerous as the stars, and through them bring blessing to all the families of the earth, these, this grand 
promise and covenant that God had made to Abraham and then to Isaac now get passed on not to Esau, but to Jacob. And God will repeat these promises to Jacob, this covenant. Uh, Jacob will now be the line through which God eventually uh, comes into the earth in the person of Jesus. Okay, So very human series of events like deception, trickery, uh, weakness, all of this stuff, but God uses this to bring about, to, to carry on the line through Jacob, who becomes Israel. Okay, so that's the beginning of this uh, relationship between Jacob and Esau. And as the Lord said, this division would continue in the people that came from them, the Israelites and the Edomites. And we see a lot of examples of this in Scripture. So as the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, they've been in Egypt in slavery for a while, they, they need, they're going to the promised land, and right in their way is Edom and the people of the Edomites. And they say, hey, can we pass through your land? And the Edomites say, no, sorry, we were not going to let you pass, just pass through our land. Years pass by, Israel gets into the promised land, they, they get a king, um, Saul and then David, both Saul and David, uh, go to war against the Edomites and win victories against the uh, Edomites. Towards the end of Saul's life, he turns away from the Lord, and God, to in judgment, um, brings an Edomite, Hadad, is his name, as an adversary to punish Saul. About 150 years later, the, the people of Israel are now split into two kingdoms, as we've seen, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Um, and Judah, uh, King Amaziah of the southern kingdom of Judah, goes, into, goes to battle against the Edomites, and he kills 10,000 of them, and then he throws another 10,000 of them off a cliff. So really just, this is going well, there, uh, this relationship here. And then finally, both nations are at, at, at one time threatened by the Babylonians, and they actually get together, and they're like, hey, maybe we could get together and... Um, uh, do something about this threat together. But at the, at the last minute, the Edomites pull out and they actually end up joining up with the Babylonians and use the situation to their advantage to get some of the land that, that Judah had. And, and that, as far as we can tell, is the immediate context for Obadiah. That has just happened and then God has this message to Edom through the prophet Obadiah. So we're going to read that a little bit, but I want to point out something really important here to notice. In all of this, we're not dealing with one righteous, godly nation and one unrighteous, ungodly nation. If we were to go back to Jacob and Esau, in their cases, we are not dealing with one exemplary godly brother and one just wicked, evil brother. Uh, scripture does nothing to hide Jacob's sin and deception uh, does nothing to, to hide or downplay Israel's sin and, and their wickedness, as we saw last week. So God's sovereign choice of Jacob over Esau and the people of Israel over the people of Edomites um, has nothing to do with any inherent righteousness or greatness in either Jacob or the people of Israel. Uh, chosenness here doesn't mean um, better or more godly. Chosenness here also doesn't mean exclusive, as if I'm only, God, God is saying, I'm only going to work in, among these people, and uh, I'm just blind to the rest of, of creation. No, God is simply working 
in often unexpected, in often what seem strange to us ways, to bring about his purposes, to keep his promises to Abraham, to sustain this family line, and eventually to bring about the Messiah through it. God is sovereignly bringing about his purposes for all of humanity, often through wicked and evil and sinful actions of sinful people, but God is sovereignly working, bringing about all of his purposes through this. God is king, God is in charge, even in the midst of all of this stuff that's going on. Um, Proverbs 21, 1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Um, This is God's sovereign uh, rule over kings and over everyone that ultimately God is king and God is bringing about his purposes. Through history, through the very real human events of history, uh, mankind is making their decisions and is choosing and, not, and, and deciding these things and sinning and, and, and then turning back and all of this stuff and all these things on the human level, but over and above it all, God is still king. And so here in Obadiah, we see God turn, turning the hearts of some kings of some nations against the people of Edom. So let's, let's continue on in verse 2. God is going to pronounce a judgment against Edom. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So the, the land of Edom was very mountainous. Uh, they lived in, in land that was up to 5,000 feet um, above sea level. That, that gives you some context for those verses there. Verse 5, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? And yet, that is not what happened. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So God, is, God would sovereignly bring about and ordain judgment on Edom for their wickedness. And we'll see the reason why in, in a little bit. Um, but you see that they, they felt secure. They had this lofty position in the mountains, apparently strategically a good position, um, where you feel in a time period where it seems like your greatest threat comes from other people groups attacking you. They felt very secure, and yet we see that um, if you are unwilling to turn to God, uh, no amount of earthly or physical or material security or position um, is real security. God will execute justice for them. And then God makes very clear the reason for Edom's judgment. Verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, so the Israelites, 
Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers, uh, most likely the Babylonians, carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah. In the day of their ruin, do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. A couple more verses. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. So we've talked a lot about the day of the Lord recently. And last week it was, and mostly what we've seen, it was a day uh, where Israel felt secure, but we s we've seen that they were not exempt from this day of the Lord, of God coming in, in great power and judgment um, when they rebelled against him. But here, the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So we see that God's sovereignty, God's justice extends to, to the, over the whole earth. No nation, no people, no individual is outside of his view. And of course, this is terrible news if you were on the receiving end of God's judgment. Um, but if we were to step back and, and objectively consider this, the, the perfect justice of God, the, the all-seeing, never-sleeping, never-excusing justice of God is what this world cries out for, is, is what our hearts long for. Um, Psalm 75 equates God's justice to the steadying of the pillars of the earth, like bringing this balance. It says, when the earth totters and all of its inhabitants it is I, says God, who, who steadies its pillars. And the way he does that is by executing judgment, putting one down and lifting up another. This world longs for justice, for right, wrongs to be made right, for there to be some um, final standard where all that is evil gets, gets its due. And we are told that there is nothing outside of God's view. Every knee will bow, all will Every mouth will give an account. And, and so just practically, some of the ways this, this is good news, um, if you have had evil committed against you, and it's just out there, and there was never any satisfying justice done, um, whether something you could do or something even the law could do, and this evil is just out there and has not met justice, that is not beyond God's justice. Or you look out on the world and you see, like Edom, prideful, arrogant, godless, unbelieving people, and often you see them succeeding, and you cry out, God, why? God sees, God knows his, his sovereign rule extends over all peoples, over all individuals.
And yet, as we've seen time and time again recently, God would prefer that, that we would turn, that all would turn to him. And he would shower them with grace and kindness and tenderness. And we see that this heart uh, towards this heart of God is not only directed towards Israel, or is not only directed towards us who might be in church today. This is God's heart towards everyone. Um, there's a, a passage that I came across this week where God pronounces uh, judgment against Moab, not, not his people Israel. God pronounces his judgment on them for their sin, but then later on he, he wails and cries out for having to bring this justice on them. He would, he would prefer that they would turn and repent. Just to be clear, nowhere in Scripture does God wail and cry out when He has to show mercy. He, he delights in showing mercy. If only we, if only they would turn. He will bring justice against unrepentant sinners, then and now, but He would prefer to wrap His loving arms around us. And, and what this does is enable us to be humble and yet confident at the same time. Humble because we rest in, in, in grace. If we have genuinely turned to God, um, our position is completely, as we're just saying, um, in grace, grace and grace alone. There's nothing that we can credit in ourselves. It keeps us humble because as uh, we we see and experience the evil and pride and unbelief around us, again, we know that it is only by the grace of God that, that we have been led to repentance. And humbly, as we pray even for our enemies, those who hurt us. And yet at the end of the day, we can also be confident because we know that God will be just. God will bring perfect justice over the whole earth when it's beyond our power, when it's beyond the power of the law, when there is no making right of wrongs that have been done to us or others. God is still in control. God will bring justice. We see the certainty of God's rule, of his plan, of his purposes in these last verses of Obadiah. Um, and we see that the history is not just kind of going on on its own. No, God is ordaining history to go in a certain direction. Specifically, he is, he is bringing about his eternal plan to display his grace and glory to the world. Verse 17. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. So Mount Zion is another name for... For Jerusalem, um, the, the, the city of uh, the Israelites. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. 
Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, one of the things that makes reading Old Testament prophecy can make it difficult is that there's often a mixture of near-term fulfillment, like within the lifetimes of these people often, and then some long-term fulfillment. And, and the long-term fulfillment sometimes is pointing forward to, to Jesus and God's, what God would do in, in and through Jesus, and sometimes it's pointing forward even further to Jesus' return and, the, and the, the eternal kingdom that God would bring, bring about. So with Obadiah here, this judgment that we've seen God speak against the Edomites is well documented in history. Uh, the Babylonians would conquer Edom uh, in 553 BC within 10 to 30 years of this uh, of uh, Obadiah um, saying these words. Okay, so we know that, but there's clearly a lot else here that's pointing further out into the future to what God would do in the future. Uh, we are told that Mount Zion, another name for Jerusalem, uh, would be holy, set apart, committed to God. We are told that the Israelites would return and repossess the lands that they had previously occupied, the promised land. And most significantly, we're told that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, there are different interpretations of prophecies like this. Some see them relating to a purely ethnic Israel, not that God would uh, save and bless every Israelite regardless of their faith in Jesus, but that he would yet and he will yet save a remnant of Jews chosen by grace, as Paul says in Romans 11, just like every other believer, and they will be restored to their promised, their promised physical land. Others see these promises as being extended out to include all those saved by grace, that Jesus is the true Israel, the true and better Israel, the true Son of God, who perfectly obeys the covenant and the law, and that all of those who would come to God through Jesus, through faith in Him, Jews, non-Jews, are grafted into the people of God and are part of true Israel. And thus they are the recipients of these promises in Jesus, and they will inherit the promised land of God's eternal coming kingdom. And even within our church, there are a variety of views on these things, and that's, that's fine. These aren't things that need to, to separate us. Um, these are things that we can talk through, and there's some difficult passages to kind of work through, but ultimately we can be united in Christ and united in the mission that we have to live as His people and to proclaim His gospel. So let me just hone in on a couple of things here which we should all agree on, and which are significant. First of all, remember that the nature of God's promise to Abraham. Uh, we've talked about this in, in the past few weeks. So God made this promise to Abraham that his choosing of Abraham and of Abraham's people, of the Israelites, wasn't just for their sake, but was, a sake, was for the sake for, of eventually bringing blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And so we see God say things um, later on in the Old Testament, things like, I will make you, Israel, as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Um, Israel, by and large, doesn't do very well as a light to the nations. 
Hence why God often brings judgment on them. Their obedience, their faithfulness, their witness to God and his law and presence among them isn't all that great much of the time. And yet, there is one way that they succeed, or God succeeds through them, in bringing his salvation to all of the earth. And that is, as God brings about Jesus, as God comes into the world through Israel as an Israelite, Jesus comes as the light of the world, bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. And this is ultimately what God has been doing. All of God's sovereign workings, the reason we're talking about history at all today, like, you know, perhaps that seems weird to you. Like, aren't, what does history have to do with my personal salvation? No, God, this is God's history. This is God's world. God has been working from the beginning of time through Adam, through Abraham, through David, through the Edomites, through all of these other nations, preparing the way for Jesus. There's nothing happenstance about this. This isn't God like quickly responding to things like, oh, I didn't see that. Let's go to plan Z. No, all of this past, present, and future is God working out his grand plan to draw people to himself, to display his glory and grace. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians, so that in the coming ages he might show, he might display the, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That is what God has been doing, displaying, bringing about this plan centered on Jesus to display the immeasurable riches of his grace, of who he is, of his kindness toward us. And then secondly, and all of this ties together, that last, note that last phrase of Obadiah. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. So what is God's purpose? What is the end to which God is working in and through Israel? In and through Jesus? In and through the church? Well, it's to establish his rule. To establish him as king over his kingdom. Um, does not Jesus tell us to pray, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and to long for and to, to pray for God's rule and reign to come here as in heaven. Uh, the book of Revelation, other texts speak of what this is like and what this will be like, of God's final kingdom fully coming fully to the earth. God and his people are brought together in what can only be described as a, a wedding feast, like, if you were to think of the most exciting event, celebration we have, a, this wedding feast, a meal, food, and a wedding, like, this is what it will be like for God and his people to, God to finally be united in this way with his people and rule over them and live with them. So this is ultimately not about Israel. This is ultimately not just about you and I, although we have place, a place in it, and Israel had a place in it and a part in it, and, but this is ultimately about the Lord and his purposes and his kingdom, about God's rule and reign, and all of those who share in it. So, kind of then zooming into us today, where do we stand in this grand story that God has been weaving 
from before time began. God has called the church, which is all of those who confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. God has called the church to, to live out their, their identity as his blood-bought children, to rest in him, to, to rejoice in him, to rejoice in the Lord always, to, to live as his people, to submit to him. God has called us to bear witness, just as Israel was to bear witness. God has called us to bear witness to who he is and his grace and his gospel, to proclaim that, to be the vessel for spreading this news to the world. God has given us his spirit that we might live holy, distinct lives. We might be separate from and look different than the world. Ultimately, that the will and kingdom of God will come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.